Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, it's Rob again from the Dig Deep the Mining podcast. And today I'm back in the office in London and going to be chatting to Pat Forward, who's the Chief Operating Officer at Euromax who are a Canadian mining development company who are building and developing a copper and gold mine in Macedonia and exploring other areas of Eastern Europe. After speaking with Pat on a few occasions, I was really interested in, in, and intrigued into what he had said about Euromax and what they've gone through recently with uh, government corruption, difficulties with permits and new governance, political instability and further hold-ups in the project due to the uncertainty and change of government personnel, which has unnecessarily caused delays in the project projects that they're involved in. Many of you listening may have experienced some of this um, and some of the challenges that Pat has faced, so hopefully you can share some of those experiences and how they overcome them, which um, help, may help some of you listening. So um, no further ado, I'd like to introduce you to uh, Pat. Hi, Pat. Hi, Rob. Good to talk to you. And yourself. Um, so let's just get into this. So I appreciate you uh, coming to uh, coming to um, to the offices to uh, come and do this podcast. Um, so can you give a li- little bit about your background and why you decided to get into mining um, and study mine and geology at university? Sure. Um, I'd love to be able to say I was one of those kids who was looking at rocks and fossils when I, you know, from a young age and all of that. But actually, it, it was plain and simple. Um, when I was a, a sort of about 17, 18, I had a really bad travel bug, and I wanted someone else to pay for it, basically. Um, so I looked at careers that could let, allow me to travel around the world, yeah. and um, geology was particularly interesting. And as I got into it further, uh, I found that the sort of mining world part of that was was even more interesting, and I wanted my university studies to be uh, at least partially vocational. Yeah. Um, so that's why I did mining geology uh, as 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 my final option for for the course I did. Okay. And um, so, what, whereabouts did you actually study? Uh, I started studying at Royal School of Mines, part of Imperial okay. College, yeah. um, here in London. Okay, and then after uni, what did you? Uh, what was your next step? Um, I had to spend uh, about a year grabbing what work I could. Yeah. Uh, I did some research work for companies here in London, um, just some desktop research, and then uh, I started running exploration projects uh, as an associate of a consulting company called okay. ACO Howe International. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I ran a uh, exploration campaign down in the southwest of England. And then through them, uh, started working more internationally in South America and Africa. Okay. And so how long were you working as an expat for? And probably if you can explain what it's like, I suppose, working as an expat in those uh, various countries. Sure. Um, It was a period of about seven or eight years where I was working overseas. And of that, it was about five years that I was based totally in Africa, totally living there. And then a bit of time either end where I was coming and going. Yeah. Um, and what countries did you work in? Uh, in South America, it was Venezuela yeah. exclusively. In uh, Africa, it was almost entirely West Africa. Uh, main part of my uh, sejour there was in Burkina Faso, but I also spent time in Ghana, Niger, Mali, uh, usual suspects, Sierra Leone, um, Liberia and Guinea as well. Okay, so quite a few countries in Africa. I suppose you went through, there was a lot of different cultures amongst those uh, different countries. There was, but there was also a bit of a common theme in West Africa as well. Um, And uh, the sort of expat community was was quite similar around those places. The main differences I found were in places which had a very developed mining culture like Ghana compared to Burkina Faso, which in the 90s 
had no, virtually no mining culture whatsoever. Yeah. There was an old uh, mine that was mainly French run called Pura, which was on its last legs. Yeah. And there was a sudden exploration boom, uh, dr driven largely by Canadian mid-tier and junior mining companies. And, and that's what I was part of. Uh, resulted in maybe half a dozen mines operating now. So that was a good period of exploration, which has, has really boosted the, the Burkinabi economy right now, which is good to see. Yeah. Was there any particular country that you uh, favoured over another in Africa? Burkina at the time was fantastic. I, I uh, spent uh, five years there, as I said, I was living there. Um, I signed uh, my, my family there. Um, at the time, it was a fantastic place, and, and actually, the, the, the strife that's happened there politically uh, over the more recent past is really surprising, uh, I think, to many people who were living there when I was. It was viewed as probably the most stable place in, in West Africa at that time. Um, not the most pretty place, dry, dusty, but probably one of the most friendly uh, local people, very, very friendly. Um, very pro-mining at the time, so it was a great place to be and um, there was a fairly uh, vibrant expat community, exploration driven, um, so quite hungry to, to find new things. We were swapping notes on what exploration techniques were working, um, that kind of thing and uh, it, was, it was a very good time out there, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And what about South, South America? You mentioned uh, you worked out there, how was that? How was that and how was that different to Africa? Yeah, I, I was in Venezuela for a much shorter period. I was only yeah. there for, for three or four months. Okay. Um, again, it was quite an exciting period. Uh, this was round about 93, 94. Um, so uh, a lot happening in exploration. Again, very uh, driven by uh, Canadian uh, investment, Canadian junior yep. companies going out there exploring for ground. Again, it was before things went really bad in Venezuela, so yep. it was quite an interesting uh, period to be there from that point of view. They were quite pro-mining. Um, compared to anywhere I was in Africa, there was a lot more tension with the uh, artisanal miners, Garamaros, okay. yep. in, in Venezuela, and that was quite difficult um, to deal with. They were quite militant. Uh, they didn't want to know about foreign investment. And there was an underlying tension there, I think, socially, that uh, more so than, than in Africa. Uh, there was a lot of a resentment of North American money. Um, and uh, so it wasn't such an easy place to be, interesting place to be, uh, but not such an easy place to fit in socially. Um, the, I didn't get so involved because I wasn't there for, for, for long yeah. enough in the kind of expatriate community there. So I can't really speak for that yeah, so yeah. much. Yeah. Um, that could have been very good, it, it, maybe not so. Um, but I, I didn't warm to it as much as I did to Africa, I have to admit. But it's still a really interesting place and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it having the experience of working there for anything. It was, yeah. it was good. Yeah. I mean, uh, myself as being a recruiter, I don't have any exposure to South America. so. I can't really comment on that. My uh, main focus is uh, Africa and Asia. So um, yeah, so I, I suppose I can't give too much uh, too much um, clarity around what it's like to recruit people for South America. Although I know the expat market is probably uh, well, it is a lot smaller than what it would be in Africa. I think for the UK especially, yeah. um, I think there's a lot more Canadian uh, expats working down there. But I think also. Um, Latin America is, is uh, you know, very different country to country. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've got friends who've worked down in Chile and say it's the best place yeah. ever. Uh, friends who've worked in, in Colombia who said that was fantastic. Yeah. Um, so um, I think, like anywhere, different people have different experiences, but I think it's quite diverse in, in Latin America. Um, as I say, I've got many friends who've had a great expatriate life there for many, many years and have had family down there and stuff like that and wouldn't hesitate to recommend it. Yeah. So going back to Africa, because obviously that's where you had quite a lot of expatriate experience. Sure. What challenges did you have and had to overcome? Was there any major, major difficulties? Obviously, I know more recently you had some that we can go into further in the podcast. But where, um, what sort of major challenges that you had to overcome? I think in, in, um, 
The, the main thing in Africa, I mean, the, the majority of my time I was involved in exploration. Yeah. So you've got the logistical challenge of sending, setting up fairly remote exploration camps um, with uh, minimal infrastructure. Um, and uh, there's a lot of planning to do around that. Uh, I quite enjoyed doing that. I had some great guys working for me when I was a manager out there. Uh, and I enjoyed when I was more junior setting up my own camps. Yeah, and all the stuff you have to think about. So, you know, that was that that's first and foremost an exploration yeah. and every aspect of it, making sure you've got the tools to do the job, making sure you cover health, health and safety issues. Uh, I have to say in the nineties they probably weren't <laughs> quite as strong as they are now. Um, and you know, I can remember working on drill rigs and a pair of flip flops and shorts, which probably wasn't a <laughs> done thing. Absolutely, I quite rightly said. Um, so I think there was a lot of that. Um, you know, some of the places I didn't spend quite so long in, um, there were different challenges. I'm thinking of places like Sierra Leone and Liberia. Yeah. Liberia, I was there at the tail end of Charles Taylor's um, ruling of the country, and Sierra Leone uh, after the conflict there. Um, you're dealing with lots of different social issues related to that, uh, which, which aren't always easy to, to see and deal with. Um, and uh, different kind of aspect of just moving around. So there was a lot more military control in those places, a yeah. lot more checks, um, which aren't always uh, pleasant to go through. Um, you know, young, almost kids yeah. on military checkpoints, well armed, um, doesn't I always that, I, bet was, I bet that was scary. Yeah. And a bit frightening, considering I suppose that might have been the the first few expat uh, journeys that you've had. Yeah, in, in, indeed. And in fact, um, you know, one strange experience I had, because I'd spent so long in, in Burkina Faso and uh, my ex-wife is from Burkina Faso, I ended up with a Burkina passport. Yeah. So I used to travel in the, on that in West Africa. And uh, the team I was with in Liberia quickly learned that I should hand over my passport first nice. because it really broke the ice yeah. with, with some of these quite edgy, uh, well Did you have to hand over passport and money as well? No, no, no. They took one look at this West African passport yeah. and my, uh, <laughs> and, and it couldn't really match it to me uh, as an Englishman and uh, would usually burst out laughing. And that just broke the ice yeah, yeah. and you could get chatting to the guys and it just made it a more pleasant experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that was quite a strange experience traveling around that part of the world. Unexpected benefit of traveling on a West African passport. Yeah. Never got kidnapped or anything like that. I've heard, I've spoken to quite a few candidates, probably a good four or five that have over some time during their career, have either been locked up, kidnapped, just maybe for, for ransom. Um, some yeah, some really funny stories. Anything? No, I've heard a lot of stories like that, but whether it whether it's from from luck or good judgment of situations, yeah. I don't know. But I never ever got into those kind of situations. Yeah. Uh, you know, the worst you get is a bit of heavy questioning when yeah. you're going through a checkpoint or something yeah. like that. Uh, but buying the cars a couple of beers usually resolves that. Yeah. So yeah, no. L luckily, it, it it was it was all plain yeah. sailing. Was that was that more? back then that those things happened and not now or do some of those things do do they actually happen now or not as much uh, you mean kidnapping and things yeah. like that yeah yeah no i think i've heard of that, that relatively recently in okay. my stomping ground in Burkina okay. faso that there were, were some um guys taken uh and held for a while and things like that maybe a couple of years ago i think it was a couple of mining analysts so I, th I think that does still happen and, yeah. you know, unfortunately, uh, the pendulum can swing quite rapidly mm. on stability in environments where um, basically poverty is still prevalent. I think yeah. that's what drives that instability. So, um, and there are still, uh, you know, large portions of Africa that are still extremely poor yeah. um, and you get that instability. Uh, and it's really as a function of that. So I think it does still go on. Yeah. Um, the places where it occurs may move around. One place becomes stable, one, one, one yeah. place becomes instable. Um, but uh, yeah, unfortunately it does still happen. Mm. Um, I think uh, whether, um, you know, companies can make judgment calls on where they go and where they don't go. Um, 
you know, I wouldn't be comfortable putting uh, my teams in, in situations where it was likely to occur. You can't always predict it, but uh, I think um, that may not always be true, um, but sometimes it's just bad luck. Yeah. Yeah, not a wrong time, wrong place. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So what would you, what do you enjoy about expatriate or expatriate work? I, as I said early on, I, you know, from a young age, I had a real bad travel bug. Um, I was curious to see other places, how other people lived. I I was very keen to do it off any kind of tourist trail um, and interested in every aspect of uh, whether it's sort of anthropological, social, whatever. Um, I I was keen to do that. So that was one aspect that was, you know, it it really gave me an opportunity to work and, and travel off the beaten track yeah. and see some really interesting stuff that I probably wouldn't have have, have seen otherwise, you know, yeah. being invi- invited to a local wedding in, out in the bush somewhere, um, sleeping in a chief's hut in Sierra Leone and, uh, you know, having parties held for us in our honour and things like that. I, th- I don't think that's stuff I, I would have otherwise seen. Yeah, and I don't think it happens in other industries to really tell the truth, not in the, in the, in the way it would happen in the mining industry. Absolutely, yeah, I think, I think that's very true, Rob. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, the other side of it is there's a, there's a camaraderie within expats themselves. It's very enjoyable. Uh, I've made some really, really good friends. And, you know, sometimes you're working with them, sometimes they're just working in a similar environment, and that isn't always easy, and that helps bring people together. And particularly in exploration, you're not just working together, you're you're having to make do together, you're you're building camps where you live, whatever social life you have is around those people. Um, So uh, you either get on very well or you don't get on at all. Tensions can rise, but I think that's a really enjoyable aspect. That camaraderie. Um, I'm now more executive in my roles, and you know I miss that a bit. Yeah, uh, I have to say, had some great fun doing that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, th- I think those would be the sort of headline items of of expatriate life yeah. uh, that I really recommend people think about because yeah. it's 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 very. Uh, it's a cliche that travel broadens the mind, but for me that was certainly the case, uh, and those were the main two aspects of that. Yeah. What advice would you give anyone that has only sort of worked in their own countries um, and looking to probably get their first expat gig? Um, is there anything, any advice that you could give them on how they could potentially prepare for life as an expat? I think be open-minded. Yeah. Um, don't be too prescriptive about what you're looking for. Um, it, the, the whole thing for me is about broadening your horizons. And it's an adventure, I suppose, as well. It, it is, but it can give you experiences that you can use later on, whatever you're doing. So whether you choose to return back or you choose to move to um, a more uh, developed world situation, let's say, um, it, it, it will give you experiences to help with that. I think the other thing is don't be scared. Um, you know, maybe don't do anything totally stupid. So going into a real danger zone that yeah. isn't recommended by. Uh, the hopefully, yeah, hopefully the mining companies are on top of that with security. Absolutely. And again, I get asked those questions quite a lot when I'm placing expats in certain countries. Yeah. So, and again, it's one of the questions I ask the client. Um, how the security arrangements are, yeah. how, um, how good is it, and are they are the, the people that I'm potentially putting into these positions, are they safe? So, yeah. Um, um, I think maybe other recommendation, uh, which is perhaps particularly for, for, for British people, we're, we're renowned as not being very good linguists. Um, don't be afraid of that. And when you're out there, don't be afraid of having a bash at trying to speak uh, a different language. Yeah. Um, it, it, that can really help you um, and uh, it's something when you're immersed that is a lot easier to do. Uh, more recently I've worked uh, in, in roles where it's not so easy to be immersed and, and I've lagged behind on language and that's um, made the uh, opportunities not so evident, either socially or professionally. Yeah. So. Have a bash at uh, uh, yeah. using foreign language. It's, yeah. it, it will broaden the. I was going to say any, any particular languages. I know in West Africa. A few of the companies that I've dealt with in the past 
have asked for French, uh, if, if people can speak French. Yeah. Is there any other languages that potentially other people should look into? Well, I mean, for me, it's Spanish and French. So Spanish, obviously, for Latin America and French for West Africa. Yeah. Um, I think um, learning a uh, Slavic language could be useful uh, and, or, and or Russian. Yeah. Um, that, that could be very, very useful if you're looking over that direction because uh, geographically, because there are a lot of opportunities uh, still in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, and the culture is quite impenetrable without use of language. Um, so that I think those would be the big ones yeah. uh, to, to look for. I mean, I didn't ha really have any languages out of school. I learned a bit of Spanish in Venezuela and I, I became fluent in French um, in West Africa. So don't be afraid of not having a language. It is yeah. something you can pick up along the way yeah. uh, as an expat. Okay. Well, so for anyone that is looking to, uh, to get into their first uh, expat role, then uh, hopefully there's some uh, good points Pat's, uh, Pat's um, made there. Um, so right, I want to move on to uh, obviously your company now. Who, what your the company you're heading up, Euromax. Um, so why did you uh, join Euromax then? Yeah, it's it's, it's um, a reasonably interesting story actually. I was um, running the technical projects at a company called European Goldfields, okay. uh, which was um, had a London-based office and a, a Canadian-listed company. Um, I joined that in around 2004. Uh, I was brought into the company by the guy who joined as CEO, my friend David Redding. And um, from that, uh, we had actually looked at Euromax as a potential acquisition on an M&A basis. And it was mainly because of the asset in Macedonia. Uh, we really were very keen on copper gold porphyries, uh, and they had one in a very early stage of development that looked pretty good, which is the Ilovitsa Stuka project. So, already had my honour. Uh, European Goldfields was taken out by uh, El Dorado Gold Corp okay, yeah. um, in early 2012. And uh, my colleagues and I from European Goldfields were keen to hang together as a management team. Um, Steve Sharp uh, was head of business development at European Goldfields. And separate from my interest in Euromax on a technical basis, he had been contacted. Uh, over a couple of years about uh, Euromax as well. Yeah. And um, they had some corporate issues within Euromax they needed to iron out. Um, and they brought in a team to do that. But by serendipity, exactly in 2012, when we became available as a management team, uh, they'd sorted those issues out. They needed a team who could, A, potentially arrange financing for big projects and B, run them technically. Uh, so we were a very good fit as a team. We put in uh, an investment between us, friends and family, to get that going. Uh, there was an amicable swap of positions on the board with existing people on the board, and we were voted in uh, during the AGM of 2012. Yeah. Um, so I came in as COO. Um, Steve came in as CEO. He's since retired. He's just got to time in life where he wants to sit down. And uh, Varshan Gokul, also from European Goldfields, stepped in as... Uh, CFO and has now stepped up to CEO when Steve retired. So we came as a team, Lock, Stock yeah. and Barrel, and we even brought uh, board members as well. So Martin Koenig, who's our executive chairman, he was executive chairman at uh, European Goldfields. Tim Morgan Wynn was at European Goldfields as well. He came on as a director as well. So we really came as partners already. And how long, how long have you guys been together? Um, we came into European Goldfields and Drips and Draps, that's where we all came together as a group. Uh, I was the earliest of the group, it came in in 2004 and the other guys came in 2008, 2010. Um, so we've been working together for, for almost five years as a team when we came into uh, Euromax. Yeah. Uh, we knew each other very well, we knew each other's capabilities and we, we, we worked off each other quite well. Um, so uh, it, it, it was a great um, time to come in as well. The market yeah. was quite frothy then. Um, at the, the share price did well. It was like falling off a log. Yeah. Um, <laughs> things have got a bit harder since, but we had a very clear vision about what we wanted to yeah. do as well. 
We saw an asset which was uh, barely uh, explored. It had a very sketchy inferred resource. So we saw a very clear uh, value creation opportunity in doing what we've done at European Goldfields and proving it up. And very, very quickly over only five years, we took that from sketchy inferred resource to um, f uh, definitive feasibility study level and beyond. We, we, we took it to basic engineering. Uh, that was a pretty quick uh, time to do that. We did that for about 30, 40 million bucks, including corporate expenditure, which I think is very good value yeah. as well, particularly for a large copper deposit. Um, so uh, we were well motivated to do that as well. Uh, so it, 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 it really was a, a, an ideal uh, opportunity for us to stay together, stay working with people yeah. we liked, uh, and, a, and a great asset to do it with. Yeah. Um, before we go on to some of the more recent challenges that you had, how's the company developed from when you started up until probably 2016? How, how was that journey? Um, I think probably the biggest change was we started off with uh, you know legal and investor relations team uh, as well as the, the main executive here in London. We found that capability was excellent in Macedonia. And so we very quickly moved those functions out to Macedonia. Um, and to this extent now where we, we, we've only got the two of us, myself and Varshan, uh, based in the UK, and we spend a lot of time in Macedonia. Yeah. Um, so we've been able to really shift our main office out there now. Um, that, so that's probably the, the, the biggest change in the terms of the way the company works. We also went through a bit of a cycle, which is, is probably a good segue into the challenges you mentioned, where we uh, had that quite accelerated development up to a, a reasonable definition level of this asset. Um, and we built a team around that. So we started building an owner's team. Um, we got a project manager involved who had worked with us at European Goldfields, Alan Baker. He joined us very luckily. Um, so uh, we built a team up of about 45 people in, in Macedonia as okay. well yeah. uh, to do that. Now, as I said, that's a good segue maybe to get into the challenges because we've done that by sort of 2016. Um, and then we entered into a period of, of uncertainty, which yeah. we didn't see coming. Yeah. Um, and I suppose no one saw that. So no, I mean it's very it, it's it's very easy to say with twenty twenty hindsight. Yeah. Maybe we could have anticipated that. Maybe that's some of the message that I've got that other people can can look at. Yeah. Um, so maybe if I step onto that yeah, and how exactly. that actually yeah. happened, the the um, group. Uh, or, or the political party in power, or centre-right party in Macedonia. Um, our experience of them have been good. They seem to be pro-foreign um, investment. Uh, they seem to be pro-mining. And uh, they, the permitting structure there was well-defined, um, wasn't particularly different from anywhere else. And they so were, you didn't see any red flags then? Definitely not. And they were building towards a... Um, EU compliant uh, approach as well, so actually building up things like environmental and social standards. Um, we attracted the uh, EBRD as an investor as well, which further bolstered our environmental credentials. They're an important investor out there. So, you know, we thought it was a great place to be operating. Our experience, both with dealing with local uh, logistics, getting permits for forestry, roads and that kind of thing during exploration was very good, as well as advancing our, our permitting on the concessions. Um, in 2016, uh, two things happened. From the company perspective, we made most of our major submissions in terms of permitting. So yeah. a major EIA based on um, four years baseline and then impact work. So we started that right when we came in. Um, was submitted. We also submitted an initial draft of our main technical report, which is about feasibility level, yeah. uh, and a few other major submissions into permitting. Uh, in parallel with that, a political crisis blew up. Now, the opposition party there had uh, secured a number of wiretaps, which uh, have since been shown to uh, a high level of corruption yeah. with the old incumbent party. 
Um, some cases have been brought against those and those, are, those have been proven in court. Yeah. Uh, others are still alleged. Um, I have to say, we never came across that. We weren't asked for money. Yeah. Um, all of our dealings were correct. So you can say you're pretty clear you weren't involved in any... Well, not, not only that, but we weren't, we weren't, weren't even... Uh, we didn't even come across people asking us for stuff. Yeah, okay. We would have, yeah. have, have naturally refused it had we yeah. uh, come across that, but we didn't come across yeah. that situation ourselves. Um, however, with this information, uh, elections were called. They were delayed several times. During that period, a technical government was put in place. Many uh, ministerial positions changed to technocrats running those departments who weren't willing or able legally to uh, make decisions on our permitting. Um, an election was finally held. Uh, it then took a long time for a government to be formed because no one had a clear majority. The incum previous incumbents tried to form a government. They couldn't. They couldn't through coalition. Um, then the opposition tried to do the same and were eventually successful. But by this time, 18 months had passed. Yeah. So we had been treading water for 18 months. We were uh, finding- I bet that was frustrating. It was not only frustrating, it, it, it got us into a situation that was difficult financially. Yeah. Um, you know, we, as many developing companies, you raise a tranche of money for your next stage of development. We completed to a fixed point in uh, the technical definition of the project. Uh, we'd got some money in with that. We'd started doing our basic engineering. We needed to raise more. And understandably, investors looking at the situation in Macedonia thinking, uh, yeah. were thinking, well, we want this to play out and to get an endorsement. Yeah, but it's obviously out, out of your control. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, eventually the government was formed, but the new party coming in uh, needed to effectively do their own due diligence of all previous projects that had been run under the old uh, administration and make sure that they weren't contaminated with, with, with any kind of uh, corruption or implication of corruption, uh, which was a process we understood. Um, I think they were particularly suspicious of mining. Um, I'm not sure why that was, yeah. um, but uh, so we had to go through a long process with them. Of convincing them. Of convincing them. So we've been through that process and unfortunately, while we went along there, that suspicion of mining by that administration, I think, provided an opportunity for anti-mining NGOs to create uh, a lot of false claims about the uh, different projects, it was, this wasn't just us, it was many different projects in Macedonia, yeah. uh, and effectively scared the population. Now, up until that political crisis, we had done very well, we think, with our stakeholder engagement. We generally had community support. We felt they understood the project. We'd been through several consultations with the community, both driven by permitting process, organized by the government, and our foreign bat. We had organized a series of open houses. Um, but within this political vacuum, we were, we were uh, slimming two ways. One, the uh, anti-mining NGOs created a lot of, as I said, false information. Two, we were uh, financially strapped. And so responding to that was quite difficult. Yeah. So really, that sort of brings us on to the last six months. Yeah. We, we've now, we think, turned uh, the opinion of government and they are being far more supportive. They're helping us with um, engagement of the community. Uh, the Prime Minister himself organised a major stakeholder meeting um, in the early summer. Which sounds obviously positive and, and um, I think they're on your side now. Well, it, not only that, it did all the right things. I mean, we firmly believe in stakeholder engagement. We believe that mining projects should be supported and understood by the communities they're yeah, operating so. in. Um, it gave a voice to everyone. So. The NGOs were there, they gave their opinion, and uh, the mayors were there, other leaders of the community were there, uh, some of our investors were there, uh, the Canadian Embassy were represented there, uh, us as a Canadian company. But one other aspect, and this brings me on to a point that I think we did well, which uh, it, perhaps other people can learn from. All the way through our development, as I mentioned, we did environmental and social work right from when we came in in 2012. 
We used renowned international companies to do that. Uh, so we were using Gold yeah, Associates. Good clarity there. Yeah. You. Yeah. WPM uh, on the water side. Um, but we also paralleled that with local experts. So for every field, whether it's socioeconomic, ecological, water, whatever, we had a local uh, expert, and generally local experts come from the academic side, who was paralleling that and had ownership of the data and the yeah. studies. Now that came from prior experience that I had had, particularly in Europe with European gold fields, yeah. where uh, if you're permitting a project, you need some local input as well. Exactly, yeah. you need you, you need know-how, local know-how, who understands what you're trying to do and can help explain it, whether it's to government or to communities or whatever. Um, and that was very powerful for us in that stakeholder meeting. Yeah. Um, every claim that was being made by the anti-mining NGO could be countered yeah. by the local experts. And we didn't need to do it. So it was done in the local language and uh, from uh, academics are very well respected in that part of the world. So it was a very respected individual yeah. um, who was doing that. Um, and we, as I said, we did that on the technical side as well. So the guys who did the... Uh, helped us with the tailings uh, facility design. We got them to do the initial embankment design. Uh, and then they followed that design by Golder through every step. They actually ran the geotechnical program under Golder's supervision. So all sides had ownership of that. Um, and they were very passionate in defending that work um, to the questions that were raised in, in that meeting and in other meetings. So I think that's one one thing that I'd really recommend people yeah. look at. Uh, I think there's a tendency because particularly listed companies, you have to get recognized technical experts who have uh, QP status, particularly in Canada for 43101 reporting. Yes. So you have to get that done. Is that like the dual compliant? Yes, basically, but it covers an even broader base than that uh, because dual is just on your resources reserves. This is right across the project, so we'll deal with the infrastructure and all sorts of things, yeah. metallurgy, etc. Um, so there's a tendency to rely on that and solely that. And I've been guilty of it in the past. You do that study, and then it gets presented to an institute in country, and you say, please sign off on this for us to deliver to government. And it won't necessarily be an approach that they're used to taking in terms of the, the, the designs that are in there, and they've got no ownership of it. Um, so that can quite easily be countered by getting them involved in an early stage. They'll understand the designs that have preference. They may even have some good input on what those designs should be. Uh, and they'll be able to uh, defend them and, and feel they have ownership of them. Um, I think perhaps one thing we didn't do quite so well, um, we focused on the communities closest to our project. We felt that was the right thing to do to give them the emphasis. I think we in hindsight could have broadened that a little okay. bit more yeah. so there was more regional knowledge of our um, operation uh, how far operation. how far would you say you really have to look at the socio-economic impacts for that okay. and yeah. we're likely to be employing from a larger radius than say within a say 20k radius yeah and and that's where you have to start thinking about that but you also have to look at the other businesses in the area now, ours is mainly an agricultural area, and that's constrained to a particular broad valley. That's yeah. sort of considered an agricultural area. So I think within that would have been a good uh, maximum definition for our area. But it is easy to say that in hindsight. Yeah. Um, it's not always easy to execute that, uh, and getting the penetration locally is not always easy. Um, I think uh, it is something we've addressed more recently, um, I'm happy to say. But if I could have my time again, I'd, I'd definitely look at that. Um, I think the other thing we might have done is uh, employ some sort of strategic political risk analysis a little bit earlier on um, to get a more of a handle on what was happening elsewhere in the country in terms of that uh, political crisis that blew up. We, we maybe maybe could have engaged with uh, what was then the opposition at an earlier stage yeah. if we'd been able to read that. Again, 2020 hindsight, but um, that's certainly something using that experience that next time around I'll try and do. 
um, if if possible, this is see if there's an opportunity to engage with uh, a, a broader political base um, than we have done at the time. Yeah. I mean, you actually answered my next question because my next question was around what lessons have you learned and what would you've done differently. Yeah. Um, what achievements would you say that you, you believe that you've achieved? Obviously, you've come through quite a, a, obviously a political storm. What achievements would you say you've, you've got to at, at this stage? Well, I think, you know, I mean, as COO, I'm most proud of how we've uh, very cost effectively uh, added value to that asset by taking it up to definitive feasibility study level and beyond yeah. into basic engineering. I think we did that very well. And I think um, even in the initial analysis that there was an opportunity to do that, I think our team uh, showed themselves to be very adept to do that, to spot that opportunity. It's not always easy when you're just looking at a sketchy resource to see, read through it yeah. um, into all the factors that will make it work because they certainly go beyond just grade. Um, uh, you have to look at infrastructure and all the other technical dis disciplines, whether it's mining and strip, uh, metallurgy, recovery, uh, potential problems you get there. So um, uh, very happy with that. Um, I think our, our team building ability was, was, was very good. Um, and I'm very proud of that. I think given the political crisis that blew up and, and notwithstanding my sort of comments on what I might do differently, yeah. um, I think the way we've responded to that has been correct. Yeah, um, sounds, sounds like you have responded very well. Yeah, I think I think you know, it's a positive. Yeah, de definitely. You know, we, we, we were getting on well uh, previously, and we, we didn't have to develop many channels. I'm going to say with broader stakeholders to to, to achieve that. Since the political crisis, we've broadened who we speak to. So we speak to business uh, people in the capital Skopje, in the nearest large town. We've got a very good network now of people and we achieved that quite quickly. Uh, we haven't been afraid to uh, get out there and put ourselves in either in front of the camera or in front of difficult questions. Yeah. Both myself and um, my colleague Varshan have, for example, uh, done TV debates with the anti-mining okay. NGO. Um, Is that I, good? It, it's not always easy, yeah. um, but I think if, you, if one has good uh, arguments and you're with a, a, a reasonable TV outfit who uh, are unbiased and will let yeah. you put a view across, it's actually a very good way to do it. Yeah. Because how, how did they react to that then? Uh, the NGO? Yeah. Um, it, do you know, it's funny, We it, it, when we meet them as individuals, it's very respectful, there's a shaking of hands and uh, I always say to them, you know, civil society has a job to do, you're part of that. I, I completely understand that, my viewpoint's different, and I'm glad we're able to talk it through. And, and by taking that stance, um, then uh, we've actually been able to engage and put our counter-arguments across. And it, it, it's not an easy thing to do, because initially we were facing very extraordinary claims about you know, what the consequences of the mine being developed were. Uh, and that was quite scary to people, but it also makes quite interesting reading for people yeah so uh, an anti-mining group saying that all other businesses will fail or you know there's going to be uh, uh, dramatic health consequences to a project developing people will look at that headline and think wow you know that's yeah. quite interesting whereas the mining company coming out and saying well actually we're very safe and you know this is what but they saying those things are because of previous happenings around a mining company coming into the area or is it just their opinion based on not necessarily the true facts? I think it's opinion. I think what drives that, it, it, it's difficult to say. Some of the individuals may have um, political ambitions yeah. and they're using it as, as, as grist to the mill for that. Um, others are genuinely environmentally concerned. Um, and yes, the legacy of older mining, particularly in ex-communist countries, is not brilliant. So there's a re-education process from our point of view. Uh, and some of it is just driven by fear of change. I think everyone 
wherever you are is, is, is scared of change. And I think, yeah. you know, in, in communities everywhere, it'd be the same uh, where I live now in Kent. If there was a big industrial project next door, people would ask questions, quite rightly. Um, Which there is a few, few in the pipeline. Yeah. But I think the way that it's been done by anti-mining is to take the sensationalist ground and, and finding a forum where you can discuss that and give reasonable counter-arguments face-to-face is actually the best way of neutralising that. Yeah. Um, so I, I would recommend people aren't afraid of that. It's not always possible, but um, if, if, if there's an opportunity to, to uh, f- talk face-to-face and, and have uh, that recorded in such a way that people have sight of it, um, for, for us it was actually the, definitely the right thing to do. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to slowly wrap up now. I just want to, um, for the last uh, four or five minutes, just ask you a few quick fire questions that I'm going to ask every uh, interviewee. Why do you enjoy mining? For me, um, as you know, I started off in, in geology with yep. a mining bent and mainly exploration. I've gradually sort of worked my way up the food chain into yep. mine development. Um, and the, the, the sort of range of disciplines that that takes in uh, is really interesting for me. Um, And and that's what I have a great passion for, is understanding those other disciplines. I'm not an expert in them, but you you have to be able to understand a bit about mining, metallurgy. You also have to understand about environment, social issues, um, politics, markets, (laughs) finance. Um, So there's always something new and interesting and challenging. Um, that keeps keeps uh, keeps me challenged, keeps me alive. Um, so I find that very interesting. And the stuff I talked about really previously, well, it's given me a fantastic opportunity to see bits of the world, cultures uh, that, I, that I would never have seen otherwise. Yeah. Um, who's been the most influential person uh, on you in your career? It's, a, it's probably a, a, a tricky one. So I'm going I'm to be. A, politician and, and uh, as you say, uh, I'd like to name two people probably. But I, I mentioned a company called ACA Howe International yeah. that I worked for initially and um, that was run by uh, the now late uh, Carla Armstrong and he was a fantastic influence as well as all his colleagues but particularly Cal on my, on my early career, uh, he, he and Dave Patrick. And then um, while I was in, in, in European goldfields, the first part of that, uh, the CEO was a, a guy I mentioned, he's a good friend of mine, Dave Reddy. Um, Dave was a, was a very strong influence as well. Um, I learned, learned a lot from him. Is there anything else you still want to achieve? Oh, I think so, and that goes yeah. back to my answer on why I like mining. Uh, yeah. There are always new challenges out there. Yeah. Um, definitely in my, in my current job, I want, I want to see Innovative Stuka get into production, um, but I want to do more of that. And I guess because I've been working in Southeast Europe and more particularly on, on what's called the Western Tethian Belt running yeah. through the Balkans, I, I've become a bit of an ambassador for that. Uh, I run a PDAC. Uh, session on uh, the Sunday at PDAC yeah. where we get different companies from that belt uh, to talk and also uh, politicians, ambassadors for representing the countries within that. Um, so I'd like to see more development there. It's a fantastic belt geologically. Yeah. There's a lot more deposits to find so I'd love to see more yeah. mines. Is that Eastern Europe? Yeah, so it runs from, from sort of Romania yeah. uh, right down through Macedonia and Greece, of course, but Serbia as well, Bulgaria, uh, and into Turkey. Um, so right, right through that belt, it's it's the, there's a geological con- continuum there, uh, which is just right for um, uh, mineralisation. It's an accretive uh, tectonic zone. Um, so you know, like the Andes, it's uh, it's got fantastic potential for copper, but for gold and all sorts of other things yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, you don't hear too much about Eastern European mining, um, and so it's a good it, it's good to, to talk to you about that because obviously you've been in been in the area for a while now, and uh, from what you were saying, there's obviously a lot of potential out there. There is, and there's enough known deposits to fulfil the, the the cliche that the best place to find a mine is next to another mine. Yeah. Um, but there's a, a, a sort of also a, a scarcity of systematic exploration. It's done in patches, it's yeah. been done periodically, but not right across the belt. But there's loads of opportunities still there. 
um, many more deposits to be discovered, I'm sure. Um, and lastly, any advice you would give any mining professionals in the industry who are looking to sort of develop or better themselves? Yeah, I think, um, again, uh, take opportunities, don't, don't, don't be scared of them. Uh, it's, for, for me, it's always been worth sticking my neck out and saying, yeah, I can do that. Um, when, when I've been asked and, and the, the, the people I mentioned yeah. who are influential always gave me enough rope. Uh, I didn't quite hang myself. So I think I think that would be one thing. And then the other is it is a cyclical business. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the good times are very, very good and we're, we're in not such a good time at the moment. It's worth sticking those out. Um, it's, it's an exciting business to be in at any time, uh, but particularly when it's booming. Yeah. And certainly you've obviously overcome a lot of challenges and obviously more recently with, with um, the government. So I suppose it's just just keep going and just get over those hurdles and overcoming those challenges and keep pushing keep pushing forward. Absolutely, and you'll get setbacks, you know, we're still not quite there with the uh, situation in Macedonia, we've got to turn the opinion round to actual, uh, you know, receiving our permits. Um, politically, they've still not quite pinned things down, they've got a lot going on with the name change that's proposed with Greece. Um, but yeah, sticking with that is, is, is definitely worth it. Um, and it's generally about the quality of the assets. If you've got good quality assets, it's worth sticking with those yeah. who win through in the end. Yeah. Well, thank you, Pat, for coming on to discuss your journey um, and the pro problems and challenges that you had to overcome um, where some of our listen listeners may have experienced or gone through those difficult times um, and may be able to familiarise themselves with certain situations and hopefully take something away from this, uh, from this podcast. If our audience wants to contact you, um, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, through our website. Um, we, you, there, there's a general email there, but if you mark it for my attention, um, I believe it's info uh, at European Goldfields. Uh, Euromax Resources. Yeah. <laughs> got me dipping into my class there. So yeah, EuromaxResources.com. But if you check on the website, there's yeah. an info thing there that people, where people can... And are you on any social media platforms? Do you know I avoid social media okay. platforms because of the stakeholder engagement stuff yeah. we're doing? Um, so we do that with company-headed ones yeah. um, to avoid getting mixed up with uh, personnel. It's more particularly for our Macedonian personnel yeah. and things like that to, to, to make sure they and their families yeah. don't get drawn into person-to-person -person arguments with, with, with some of the NGOs we're involved with. If, if one of the listeners had a question they wanted to ask you, which is probably outside of, outside of Euromax, can they contact you via any social media? Uh, it's still through your because it's, it's, it's best, to, but yeah. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. So yeah. LinkedIn, if you look for me, you'll find me. There's not many yeah. Pat Forwards out there. Okay. Um, alternatively, you can obviously contact myself uh, via email, which is rob at mining-international.org. Um, so yeah, if you want to send any questions to me, I can forward them on to uh, Pat. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.